So I shared earlier in the service, I've been gone the last two Sundays because my family and I took a trip to France. My grandfather and step-grandmother, they've lived in France, or they've had a home in France for the last 30 years. They spend six months of the year in France and six months of the year in Florida. My grandfather uh, recently turned 94, and so he reached out and said, you know, this is uh, maybe one of the last times we'll have an opportunity for all of us to be together in France. And so the whole family, both my sisters, their spouses, their children, my parents, we all went to France together for a week. Uh, to southern France. Beautiful time. We had amazing weather. It was uh, a glorious time to be away. And it's one of those things that I, I have to remind myself to not take for granted what it means to be able to see another part of the world, uh, to travel, to even go on something like an airplane. I was talking to somebody here in Roanoke right before I left. And I said, yeah, I'm getting a little nervous about flying internationally. I haven't done this in a while. And the person I was talking to said, you know, I've never stepped foot outside of Roanoke County. And there's a lot of people like that for whom their reality is located geographically in one place. Born in one place, live in one place, die in one place. And so I have to try really hard to not take for granted that I've been able to see all sorts of different parts of the world. There is a true privilege, an economic privilege that comes with being able to, to travel. And so I, I, I lead with that because I'm about to complain about traveling internationally. <laughs> and I, I know how that sounds. You know, when you get to travel to France, no one really wants to hear you complain about it. But on our way back, uh, as it, things happen, our flight was delayed. We were flying from Marseille to Paris. So right near the Mediterranean, we were flying up to Paris to then get on another flight to get all the way to Dulles. And we got to Marseille, we were so delayed on the tarmac for so long that doing the calculations in my head, we were gonna land in Paris while our next flight was gonna start boarding. And we're going to be in different terminals. So the whole flight from Marseille to Paris, I'm starting to get stressed out about how are we going to get uh, not just Lindsay and I, but both of our children, our luggage, from where we are, where we land, to the next airplane so that we can get home. And sure enough, we land in Paris. And as we land, there's an announcement that our next flight is starting to board. And we're a whole terminal away from where we're supposed to be. So I take Phoebe, our 10-month-old daughter, and I put her in my backpack. We have these one of these carrying backpacks, you know, you can put a few things in it, but really it's designed to carry a child. And we got Elijah geared up, and Lindsay, of course, is wearing Birkenstocks, and the four of us ran through Charles de Gaulle Airport as fast as we could. I wish I had a picture, because Lindsay, Elijah, and I are terrified, we're stressed, we're sweating, and Phoebe is having the time of her life. <laughs> She's bouncing, her hands are going wild. I know she has this smile because every person we pass, they're smiling, not at the three of us, but at her, and they're pointing, baby, 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 baby. She's just flapping her little wings, you know. We get all the way through the airport, but then we have to go through customs again. Before we go from one flight to the next flight, we have to go through customs. And of course, because other flights were delayed, when we arrive in customs, our flight has already been boarding for 10 minutes, we arrive at a very long line. I've got the baby in the backpack, we've got Elijah, Lindsay and I, we're sitting there, we're thinking, oh, there's, we're not gonna make the flight. There's no way we're gonna get through customs and make it to the next terminal to be able to fly all the way home. So we're starting, oh, we're gonna have to get a, a hotel in Paris, you know, all these sorts of things are going through our mind, and we start to talk to each other, Lindsay and I, about our predicament, how are we gonna make this flight? And there's a woman in front of us, she's French, but she speaks English, and she turns around and she says, oh, is your flight boarding right now? And I said, yeah, and I don't think we're gonna make it. 
and she grabbed, you know, those little partitions they have that are made of, looks like seatbelt material. She grabbed it and she lifted it up really high and she said, run to the front of the line. I said, oh, do you work for the airline? And she said, no. <laughs> I said, what if we get in trouble? And she said, what if you miss your flight? And so she lifted up this barrier for us and all these other people in line can see us and we just skipped everybody in line and no one said a word. We went right up to customs, stamped our passport. We ran all the way to our gate. We made it on the flight. We sat down and then we were stuck on the tarmac for an hour and a half. But I experienced grace. Grace and this unnamed stranger in the middle of Charles de Gaulle Airport who said, what if you miss your flight? Is it better to be stuck here with the rest of us or to make it on that flight with your children? And so we ran, and the only reason we made it was because of her. You know what grace is like? It's like that. It's like Jesus looking at the predicaments of all of our lives and lifting up the barrier and saying, it's okay. Go ahead. Our scripture today comes from, surprise, Romans. When in Romans, the gospel of St. Paul, the epistle to the church in Rome, chapter 6, verses 12 through 23, hear now God's word through scripture. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what advantage did you then get from the things of which you were not ashamed? The end of all those things is death. But now you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. The advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we ran through the terminal, as I was just saying, and we made our way to that airplane, the last flight, the flight home, the flight from Paris to Dulles Airport. And we had just been running. We were sweating, and like our fellow sojourners, we were all a little stressed as we got onto the plane as we were searching for our respective seats. 
glancing back and forth between our boarding passes and the bulkhead to make sure that we're in the right place, that all the things will fit above or underneath the seats, all of that. I'll admit, too, that even after Phoebe was uh, sort of flapping her wings through the airport, we were not above using her manipulatively to make people happy. That's the great thing about having a baby. You can look at all these frowning people, and if you just put a baby in front of them who smiles, it changes their entire disposition. So I'm walking through the airplane with this baby, just, hey, cheer up, everybody. We're all on board. And even the baby was not enough for this flight because this flight was full of... Sinners. I have since referred to this as the airplane of depravity. The airplane of depravity. There was the flippant mother who was six rows ahead of us who kept talking over the stewards, complaining about every single thing on the flight as they rather kindly encouraged her, ma'am, could you please just sit down so we could actually begin the flight because we can't go anywhere until you sit down. There was this entire section of customers on the airplane who were threatening to sue the airline. They started to take out their frustrations on the staff because their in-flight entertainment wasn't entertaining enough. There was the overserved Frenchman about 20 rows ahead on the left who was slurring so much by the time that we landed in Dulles, we were all worried that he was going to fall over the minute that he stood up. And I confess, it was a bit fun for me to see this buffet of sinners on display. We were in the furthest back row of the aircraft. I could see everybody. Just like being here in the pulpit on a Sunday, you can see all these sinners. I don't know, there's just something about transatlantic flight, being stuck in the sardine can of an airplane. Maybe it's like the claustrophobic setting or the turbulence that's unpredictable or how every time you eat something, it tastes like you're eating styrofoam on the airplane. It, it, all these things combined, it brings out the worst in us. We say and we do and we even think things while we're flying that we would never otherwise do. In short, our sins become even worse in a moment like that. But here's the kicker. When it comes to sin as Paul understands it, it's totally different than how I just presented it. We tend to think of sin as behavior, something that we do, like lying or cheating or lusting or refusing to switch seats even though we're not sitting in the seat that's actually listed on our boarding pass, because that also happened on the plane. We think of sin as action, but Paul thinks of sin as a power. Sin is this power that is outside of us. It's like a master. This puppeteer that pulls the strings in our lives, that has dominion over us, controlling us at every single minute. Sin tells us that we're entitled to do and say whatever we want, no matter what, no matter the cost. Sin convinces us that a little cheating here or there never hurt anybody, and if it makes us feel good, then how can it be a bad thing? Sin slinks, sinks and slithers into our being so deeply that we do not realize the control that it has over us. The devices, the desires of our sins, they imprison us. They wrap their little tendrils around our hearts. Paul says, and the wages of sin is death. Sin and death are not just components of life. Paul says there are powers that rule over us. And that's why he writes to the church in Rome. It's like he's shouting through the pages of his epistle. Sin and death are real, but they have no dominion over you. To so start acting like it. 
But how can that be, Paul? Haven't you seen the mess we're in? The messes we've created. How can you say that sin no longer has dominion? All of us do things we shouldn't. We all avoid doing things we know we should. So what's the deal, Paul? And he says, you've been set free from the wrath of the law. And now you live under the freedom of grace. In other words, we're not freed from sinning, but we're free from the power of sin. Sin is not something we can choose to avoid any more than we can choose not to die. We are trapped by those powers. And it is the subject of these powers that Paul focuses on in the letter. He does so because he knows the power of sin, but even more, he knows the power of canceled sin. He knows the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. Just think about Paul for a minute. Think of the apostle, zealous, adherent to the law, the chief persecutor of the faith. He's the one who stomps out the burgeoning community we call the church. He is the enemy of God. And how does God treat God's enemy? God says, I have a job for you. You're going to be the chief evangelist for the faith. It's odd of God. Paul receives pardon instead of condemnation. Paul receives grace instead of disgrace, which is why he is the one who can proclaim how amazing grace really is because he knows. It's an audacious claim when we sing that song we were just singing a little bit ago. I was lost, but now I'm found. It's, it, it's I don't know. We sing that song at every funeral. I can't remember a funeral we've done recently where we didn't sing Amazing Grace. I do this thing, it's pastoral, you know, peek behind the curtain. Whenever we sing Amazing Grace, I always turn and I look at the cross when I'm singing it. It seems really faithful, really liturgical. You want to know why I do it? Because it makes me cry. Because the words of that song bring me to tears. It's so overwhelming to think of Amazing Grace. It's like Paul looks at every one of our lives and he's saying, Look, I know your life might be a mess. In fact, it probably is. And if, it, if your life isn't a mess yet, guess what? God's going to make it a mess. God loves to do that kind of stuff. But the work of God is more powerful than any mistake that you can ever make. You're free already. Just like the Israelites were delivered from captivity in Egypt, so too the chains of sin and death are gone forever. It's free. The gift comes not as a response to your hard work and your long prayers, to all your striving and stressing. It's a gift. It's like a woman in the airport who lifts up the barrier so you can sneak through. That's why Karl Barth was able to say that we are forbidden to take sin more seriously than grace or even as seriously as grace because grace is greater than our sin. Barth stole that from Paul. And yet at the same time, Paul knows that grace is terrifying. It's dangerous. It frightens us. Grace always has, it probably always will frighten us because it runs completely contrary to everything else in life. It lets in all the riffraff. It's everything for nothing. And Paul knew that it was controversial. He knew that some would hear it, that some would scoff, that some would embrace it and misunderstand it, that standing under grace, they'd say, well, gee whiz, Paulie, this sounds so nice. If grace really isn't amazing, why don't we just go sinning some more? To which Paul has a preemptive response. He says, no, 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 no. If you think that grace frees you to sin all you want, then you've missed the entire thing. Imagine if you can. You're in prison. You've been there for years and years and years. There's no hope of getting out. The monotony of day after day, seeing those bars 
knowing what's on the other side that you can't have anymore, and then one day, miraculously, you're set free. Would you want to go back to prison? Or imagine you've had this bad habit for years and years. It's been like a prison shackling around you. You, you can't kick the habit no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do. You can't break this habit until one day you wake up and miraculously you're able to kick it. Would you want to pick that habit back up again? The answer to both of those is, of course, no. But here's the problem. Just because we know or how, we know how bad we want to stop doing something, it's usually not enough to stop us. We fall off the wagon, as it were. We do things we shouldn't do. We avoid doing things we should. The devices and desires of our hearts, they trap us. We make promises to ourselves, to our families, to our coworkers, to our neighbors. We say, I'll never, ever do it again. Never, ever, never, ever, 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 ever. And then we do it again and again and again. So what are we supposed to do? What do we do as sinners who just keep on sinning? We are sinners. It's just that sin no longer determines us. In the kingdom of the world, we are defined by our mistakes. We are labeled by our mistakes. But in the kingdom of God, we are who God says we are. And that's the distinction Paul is trying desperately for us to see. We can do nothing for ourselves when it comes to the law, to sin, to death. We are hopeless until the hope of the world comes down at Bethlehem. Walks the streets of Galilee, mounts the cross of Calvary, rises on Easter magnificently. God changes everything, even us. So we can live as new people now, no matter what the powers and principalities try to tell us. We can live freed lives even while sin entangles itself around us. People like me are always trying to summarize the Bible, trying to summarize a book in the Bible into like a sentence, make it a little more digestible, a little easier. For a long time, people have tried to summarize everything Paul says into one sentence, and the sentence is, become what you already are. Become what you already are. And that's, I think, pretty good. Because in baptism, we are deadened with Christ that we might rise with Christ. In communion, we literally put God inside of us that we might be more like Jesus and less like ourselves. We are already defined by the grace of God, and nothing can take it away. Become what you already are. Basically, wake up to the slumber of your sin. But of course, the powers and the principalities, they wage against the powers of grace. Why Luther says we are simul justus as peccator. We are saints and sinners at the same time. We are sinners and we are justified at the same moment. We are declared righteous. Remember Abraham? We are reckoned righteous, not because of us, but because God says we are. And God is not a liar. All of us, the good, the bad, the ugly, and even the pretty, we all make mistakes. We all mess up. But Paul reminds us of God's promise. Sin no longer defines us since we are not under law, but we are under grace. We are sealed by the promises of baptism and communion no matter what we do or leave undone. While we were in France, we explored the provincial countryside. We took in the sights and the sounds and the food and the culture and all of it. Elijah and I even walked across a Roman bridge that was built in 3 B.C., it still had cars driving over it in 2005. Think about that. 
I tried really hard to convey to him, Elijah, what you're seeing, what you're touching is older than anything in our country. That means something when you're 35. It means nothing to you when you're seven. And, and just as an aside, I love the fact that I got to touch something that was Roman, considering that we are spending our summer in Romans. That I got to hold this ancient thing in the palm of my hand for just a moment. Anyway, it was great to be in France. One afternoon, we were driving around, going through these different towns that are in southern France, and it was about that time to eat lunch, which, by the way, in France, you eat lunch at 3.30 in the afternoon. It takes a while to get used to it. But we were looking for a place to eat, and we're driving around, and we were in different cars, and one car found a parking spot, but all the other family members had to keep circling around this town until they could find their own. So I got out of the car, and I had a moment. The only moment I had the entire time we were there where I was alone. I just had like two minutes to myself. And I walked around this little town, peeking in these little window shops. I was eavesdropping on conversations in French that absolutely meant nothing to me. I just walked around, and then I, I came around the corner, and I saw this massive Catholic church right in the center of this town. Huge, huge, billowing, just a massive Catholic church. Everything in the whole town surrounded it. All these restaurants, all these businesses, and there were all these people. And I noticed I was the only one looking at the church. Everyone else was going about their lives, their business, whatever they want, as if the church wasn't even there. Of course, I couldn't stop looking at it. And there, right in front of the church, was a statue of Jesus. Now, if you've ever been to a Catholic church, if you've ever seen a Catholic church, you might imagine that the statue of Jesus would be a crucified Jesus. The suffering Christ with hands outstretched on the cross, wounds in his side, his hands, his feet, suffering, pain, agony, anguish. But this was a very different Christ statue, not one that I'd ever seen before. Christ stood with hands outstretched like this, not unlike our stained glass window that we have outside, Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father. This Jesus was standing with hands like this, and he had a smile, just looking at all these people who weren't looking back at him with joy, with arms open. And I've not been able to get that image out of my mind. This smiling Jesus, looking at me and looking at everybody else. It's become the lens by which I am remembering everything in France. I wish I could properly convey how that statue made me feel. This is as close as I can get. Seeing Christ with arms outstretched with a smile, oddly enough, it reminded me that I'm a sinner. Among you all, I'm the chief sinner. That's why I get to dress like this and stand up here on Sunday. I am the chief sinner of us all. It reminded me that though for as much fun as I had judging all the people on the airplane, well, thank, thank you, Lord, I'm not like that French drunk guy up there 10, 20 rows ahead, that really I'm no different, that I'm a sinner too. I do things I shouldn't. I avoid doing things I should. Then when push comes to shove, I'm selfish. I'm self-righteous. I am not as I ought to be. And yet, with arms outstretched, with a smile on his face, it was like Jesus was looking into my heart of hearts, saying to me, hey, Taylor, guess what? You belong to me. You don't belong to sin. You don't belong to the power of death. You belong to me. So start acting like it, little Taylor. You with your flock back in Roanoke, Virginia. Become what you already are. 
You're baptized. You're forgiven. You're set free. Become what you already are. Become what you already are. That's what Christ says to me. It's also what Christ says to all of you. Become what you already are. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen.